we are going to be uh, now turning to Galatians chapter 1, and we are going to be covering uh, an entire five verses this morning. So don't worry, the plane is going to take off a little slowly, but we will next week get to uh, altitude and cruising height, so no worries there. As we look at the letter to the Galatians, what we find, and the reason that we've gone here next, is because uh, most Bible historians believe this is the first letter written by the Apostle Paul, somewhere around 48 AD. And now, no doubt, inside these first letters written, it's really an argument between Galatians, James, and First and Second Thessalonians. So regardless of which one you choose, uh, this is the direction we're going to go. And what we find is that Paul writes this not to just a specific city, like many of his letters, but instead an entire region. And here in just a minute, I'll show you the map of what this uh, Galatian region looks like, but it's located in the middle of modern-day Turkey, or at that time, Asia Minor. And this was an area that Paul covered in Acts chapter 13 and chapter 14 as he was going through planting churches on his first and then his second missionary journeys. Now, the issue that's at hand for the church is one of an infiltration of legalism. There's a bunch of Jewish supposed Christians that have come in to try to impose the law on top of the salvation of Jesus. They want to say essentially that just believing in Christ is not enough, but you need to also add the laws of the Torah, what the video described to us, into salvation in order to truly be saved. And so the idea was that Jesus was not quite enough. You're almost there, but there must be some works of your flesh that have to go in there. And this is what Paul wants to quickly refute. And instead, he gives them what I'd call the gospel of grace. Here's the good news. It's, it's by grace through faith in which one is saved. And so Paul really breaks this letter up into three different parts, all about grace. The first in chapters one and two, we see Paul's experience personally with grace. And here he's going to go and in, interject his testimony into these first two chapters. And I've mentioned this to you before. One of the beautiful things about allowing God to develop a testimony in your life is nobody can argue with it. They can argue with all kinds of things doctrinally and eschatology and Christology, all theologies people can argue with, but they cannot argue with your personal testimony. And so, so Paul's going to share about his experience with grace personally in his testimony. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see Paul's instructions about grace. And here's the thing we need to uh, grab a hold of in church is that, gra- that knowledge is not a four-letter word. Knowledge is not foul. It's not a bad thing for us to want to know more and to study and to understand more. And and often we can tend that route. It's not. And yet, if knowledge is left, it is not wisdom. And that's chapters 5 and 6. What Paul does is he gives the practical application of grace. And what we find is that wisdom is actually knowledge applied. In order for us to to learn, that's wonderful. But what are you going to do with that learning? Now take it and apply it into your everyday life. And so we'll have application as we go along the way. But this is the spot where Paul really hones in on the application of the letter to the Galatians. So all that being said, we're going to turn now, finally, to Galatians chapter 1. Verse 1, but here in just a minute, I think I put up the map for you next once the slides catch up. Right, so here we see the map of the Galatian region. And what you remember through our studies through Acts is this is a spot that Paul visited several different times. He would go through these areas, first to plant the church and then to encourage or reinforce the lessons that were taught 
to the church. Now, this is an interesting area. You might recall that this was the spot where Paul was actually stoned to death. This is how well it went for Paul in his first missionary journey. They drug him outside of the city, and they stoned him. And yet Paul, like the Energizer Bunny, popped back up, and he went right back into the city and continued to teach. And so this was a rather difficult group to minister to. Remember that as we go through this letter to this Galatian region. Now, now we're on to verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And so Paul begins this letter by mentioning who it was that was writing the letter. Now that might seem like flyover territory, and yet when you think about this, oftentimes when we write to someone or we email them, uh, we typically put our name at the end, sincerely or regards. So why does Paul address his name at the very beginning? Well, in that day, you have to remember that they were writing on scrolls predominantly. And so if you received a scroll or a long letter from someone, you would have to unroll the whole thing in order to get to the end to find out who in the world was even writing to you. And so it wasn't very practical to do that. So instead, in order to make the practical things take place, they would put their name at the top of the letter. And so Paul here, this is a good reminder for us, he does the practical thing that actually makes way for the spiritual. And that's the way it works for us in our lives as well, that oftentimes the practical things need to be put in place so the spiritual can happen. If you think about Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, what does he do? He separates the people into groups of 50s and 100s so that the disciples can have lanes of service. He puts the practical in place so that those folks gathered there can actually be ministered to. So we see this happen throughout Scripture. Now, Paul also mentions here his apostleship or his calling. What he's really trying to do is reinforce his authority as an apostle. Why is he reinforcing that? Well, because they were questioning his authority. They were questioning whether or not Paul, when he first planted the church and gave them this gospel of Jesus Christ, did he actually have the authority to do this? And this is oftentimes what happens, especially as legalism begins to rise up, is that questions of authority. Are you sure that this message is of God? Are you sure you have the authority to be able to deliver this message? Now, the reason why this happens is because what Satan knows, and he's really good at this, is that if you discredit the messenger, you discredit the message. If you can question the authority or where the message came from, you can oftentimes discredit the message itself. And so this is what ultimately these legalists are trying to do. But here's the good news for Paul. He's in really good company. What we see is a couple other people in the New Testament who had their authority questioned. First of all, a guy named John the Baptist. As he's out in the wilderness in John chapter 1, what do the Pharisees come and do? They question him. Who gave you the authority to preach on repentance and a turning back to God and baptizing people? And so authority is questioned there. But if that's not good enough company, uh, I'd encourage you to go to John chapter 2 where Jesus goes in and he clears out the temple, right? He overturns tables. He runs off the money changers and the people that are taking advantage of his children. And, and what do they do? They come in and they question his authority. Who gave you authority to do this? What sign do you do that gives you the authority for this? And so questions of authority are raised. And yet notice with me what Paul says is that not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. If you want to know my authority, if you want to know who called me into this ministry, it was Jesus. And if that's not good enough, it was seconded by God the Father. 
And so this needs to play out in our life. If we are called, we need to be called by God and God alone. It's not through man. In fact, we oftentimes in church, we get all excited about ordination. I've been through an ordination. It's a wonderful uh, series of events that takes place. And yet here's the reality. Uh, Ordination of man is completely worthless if it's not first the ordination of God. If it's not a calling by God, all man is doing is just wasting their time. But if it is by God, what man is actually doing through ordination is they are merely confirming what God is already doing in someone's life. That's what ordination really is. It's just a, an agreeance upon. It's an outward sign similar to a baptism. It's showing what God is already up to in someone's life. And so this is why Paul says, if you want to know who called me, I'll tell you it was Jesus and God. And then he gives them a little, how you like them apples kind of thing. Now, Paul is called into ministry. So for us, as we look at this, one might say, that's great that Paul was called, and yet he's got this dramatic calling. I don't have that kind of calling in my life. I'm not, I've not ever been called like that whatsoever. Now, that may be true. You may not have a dramatic road to Damascus calling kind of a story, but I want to encourage you that every one of you in this room was called just like the Apostle Paul. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm so glad you asked. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. What Paul does is he addresses three different callings that people have on their lives. The first of which is the call to salvation. The second is a call to sanctification. And the third one is a call to service. So the first one, the call to salvation, he writes to Timothy and he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us. He's talking first about the calling to salvation. Now, I believe that every single person that has ever drawn a breath has been called to salvation. That God does not want for any to perish, but for all to have the opportunity of everlasting life. If you even go back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God says he takes no pleasure. He has no delight in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't get excited about it at all. We, us as humans, we get excited about this, especially our enemy. I am ready to zap people at a moment's notice, especially when they cut me off in traffic, right? We lose all of our Jesus all at once. Usually it's on the way to church, right? And that's what happens. But here for God, he is patient and long-suffering. He doesn't want any to perish. And so for all people, they are called to salvation. And so like the Apostle Paul, we've all received this first call. Now, once we accept this call of salvation, here's the second part. And who has called us with a holy calling there in the middle of verse 9. This holy calling is one of holiness or sanctification. It's a big word that just means being set apart. You are all called, if you have received Jesus as your Savior, to be set apart. So we are first justified That just simply means just as if I'd never sinned. This is that acceptance of Christ. And then we are sanctified or we are set apart. And this, by the way, is a process. Justification by faith is a immediate, I am at the right hand of the Father. I am positionally saved. I am protected. I am part of Jesus Christ. And yet when it comes to sanctification, uh, this is going to take some time. This is a lifetime process we work through as God uh, strips things away and things fall off of us. And so the reason, though, for sanctification just isn't simply to set us apart. If that was it, that's not enough. It's actually to also draw people to God. 
It's actually, we are set apart like the nation of Israel was supposed to be so that others will look into your life and go, man, what is so different about them? How is it that they don't speak like we do or act like we do? And, and they're so joyful. What is so different? I want to know more. To some, this is the aroma of life. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians is to others, it is the stench of death. <laughs> so there are going to be people that are in your life that are, that is the aroma of life. They're attracted to that. That's through sanctification. And then finally, at the end of verse 9, and not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. The third calling is a call to service. And so for each of us, we have these first two callings in common. We were called unto salvation once we accept, we are now called into sanctification. And then this third type of service, this is unique. This is what makes us all a little bit differently. For each of you, you have different uh, skill sets, different desires and likes and dislikes. And I want to encourage you, those things are God-given. God has wired you before time began for a specific purpose. If you don't uh, believe me or like the way I worded that, I encourage you to go to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This is highlighter worthy in your scripture where Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Imagine that. He's actually created good works for you to do before he ever even created you. He created a good work, and then he said, you know what? I've got somebody just perfect to do that. I've got someone in mind to actually do this good work. And then he created you beforehand. And so a beautiful calling. And so I say all that to say that as we think about our calling, what is my calling? I love this phrase, is that oftentimes your occupation is your ordination. You want to talk about a calling in your life is that what has God put right before you, the people he's surrounded you with, the places he has put you, your friends, your family, your occupation, that is oftentimes your ordination. We get all spun up about what does God call me to do? I just want to do what the Lord wants me to do. Well, where has he put you right now? What, what spot has he put you in? You can be effective in the place that you're at. And the reason you can be effective, and I love this in verse 1, Paul says, he has been called through Christ Jesus and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Why is it you can be effective in the place that you're in? Because of the power of the resurrection. Paul doesn't miss an opportunity to bring up the resurrection. And here's the thing for the Christian, uh, this is where the power is at. This is where we can actually be raised with Christ, in Christ. We have no more fear of death. No more reason to be concerned about these mortal bodies, but we are in Christ Jesus, raised up with him. And so because of this, uh, we too can have the power of Christ, the mind of Christ. So that is a little bit about our calling. And then in verse 2, Paul says, And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul addresses these churches of Galatia, these several churches in this region. Now, this is interesting in this letter because when you look at other letters that Paul has written, many times he will speak to how thankful he is for people and how he's praying for a particular group of churches and how they're constantly on his mind. Uh, but here's the thing, Paul doesn't say this at all about the Galatians. The reason is he's upset. Paul is frustrated with them. He has spent 
time. He has endured a stoning. He's been raised from the dead. And yet here they have so quickly turned away from the gospel message. He's frustrated with them. And so he doesn't speak to his thankfulness for them, most likely because in this moment, he's not that thankful for them. He's struggling with this group of people and how to minister to them. And yet, uh, from this point forward, what you'll find in his letters is Paul always finds something to be thankful about. Always finds something to compliment other churches about. I'm encouraged by this because remember, this is the first letter that Paul wrote. And what I think I I find is that Paul, throughout his career, he begins to mellow out just a little bit. He begins to grow in grace like we're encouraged to grow in grace. He begins to be more thankful. And so as he matures, as we mature, if you struggle in this area of frustration and struggling to be thankful, I want to encourage you, God can grow you in that. He can grow you in this place of grace. And in the midst of it, take this as an additional encouragement, God uses it. Even if Paul is struggling to be thankful for these people, God still uses it. God knew what they needed was someone to jerk a knot, to pull them up short a little bit, to give them a stern talking to. And so as Paul is maturing, he is also still being used by God. And so many times I find myself frustrated that am I somehow disqualifying myself? Am I not done a good enough job? I begin to question all these things, but the reality is God can use it. That's part of being in the grace of God. Now, the next comment he makes here in verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He puts these two words together specifically, a typical Pauline salutation. He says, grace and peace to you. He uses a Greek uh, word for greeting, charis, or grace to you. So if you were in the Greek culture, you would oftentimes say grace to one another as you greet each other. Or if you were Jewish, on the other hand, you would say Peace to you. Shalom, everybody, right? Shalom. And what I love about this is Paul's message is not just for the Greek or for the Jew. It is for both. He gives a Greek greeting and a a Jewish greeting because he is now bringing these two together. Remember, as Christ gave his life, the veil that separated us from him was torn. The same thing that separated these cultures was torn. And what he's saying here is that now Jew and Greek can come back together. What he's going to say in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 is that there is therefore neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. He's saying grace. And peace. It's time to come together on both sides. Now, there's a, another thing I wanted to point out because over and over again in these New Testament letters, you'll see grace and peace given. They're sometimes called the Siamese twins of the New Testament. But I think it's interesting. They're always given in that order. It's always grace and then it's peace. And this is true in our lives as well. That if you want to experience the peace of God, you must first accept the grace of God. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's his outpouring. It's unmerited favor on our behalf. It's accepting that in our life. And then you can experience the peace of God. Now, to give a little further application, what I find is that if you desire to have peace in your life, and it's a struggle, I would ask you the question, How are you doing with giving grace? How are you doing in the grace department? Because what you'll find practically is that where there is no 
grace given, there's also no peace in a situation. Now, it's one thing to be gracious around people you don't see very often. I can be very, very gracious to you all, especially if I only see you once a week. Grace and peace to you, brother. But how does it do with the people that we see every day? Because what I find is that this is one of those things that is very easy to teach and very difficult to live. Is that in my own household, this is one that I struggle with. And then I'm so quick to wonder and so quick to cry out to the Lord, why is there no peace? And then I get the reminder, how are you doing with grace? How are you doing with giving others what they do not deserve? Grace is getting, receiving what you do not deserve. How are you doing with giving others that same kind of attention? And so it is very difficult when it comes to the daily life with those that we are connected with the most. Now, one other spot that was in actually our daily Bible reading, if you're going through the scriptures with us, with the Bible study together plan this week in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, I wanted to just read for you. As Peter writing about grace, he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Well, that's easy. Thank you, Peter. And as each, uh, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Have you ever thought about that? As a believer, you are a good steward of the manifold, the magnificent, the never-ending grace of God. And yet, we're called to be good stewards of that grace. We're not called to just give it out willy-nilly. We're called to be good stewards. The same way you're called to be stewards with your children, with your finances, with your occupations. You are called to be good stewards for what God has given you. Now, that's not an excuse to be quick to pull it back. But it is something we need to keep in mind when it comes to how do we balance this out? How do we balance out being taken advantage of and being uh, graceful with someone else? We are called to be good stewards of this. And there are times where we can actually give grace and we can harm someone. Do you realize that? If you've ever helped someone out financially, you know this to be true. There are times where we can use money to actually intercede Many times for me, it's because it's easier than getting involved. But we can do that, and we can actually harm someone more than we can do by stepping in and helping them. The same can be true when it comes to how we dispense the grace of God. And this is one of those things that even Peter will write in 1 Peter, that even the angels look upon this grace that God has on us, and they marvel. They shake their heads like, that is amazing, the kind of grace God has. And so I want to encourage you as you're walking through this journey, this tension between being a good steward and being able to freely give out the grace of God, I'll tell you what I do is I try to always err on the side of grace. <laughs> if I'm going to err, I want to err on the side. I want to stand before my Heavenly Father and go, yeah, I maybe didn't get it right, but I was a little too gracious. That's the side that I want to be on. Now, continuing as we head down the home stretch on these last two verses. In verse 4, who gave us himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about the grace and the peace we have from God who has given himself through Jesus for our sins 
that he might deliver us from this evil age. Or if you're a fan of the old King James Version, they write of this evil world. Now, this is contrary to what the world tells us, right? What the world tells us is that our nature, if not for the nurture that goes on around us, our environment, we are internally good as people. We are all good at our core. It's our nurture that has really made us bad. Now, that sounds great. It sounds wonderful. It makes us feel good about one another. But the reality is uh, it's completely fictitious and it's not scriptural. What What scripture tells us is that we are actually all inherently sinful. We all have an S-I-N problem, and it's actually in our very nature. It's not a nurture problem, but a nature problem. We were born with this. Thank you, Adam and Eve. Now, I want to be quick to point out before we rail on Adam and Eve for passing down the sin nature, do you realize they're the very best humanity could do? The absolute best of the best was Adam and Eve. Think about it. They didn't have parents that didn't love them. They didn't struggle with their friends at school. They didn't hear curse words on the school bus. They didn't hear all the things or have all the things happen to us that we've had happen to us that we want to blame our nature upon, our nurture upon. And yet, they still fell. Why? Because they had a nature problem. They chose a different master, you see. Now, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, back to the very beginning, here's what God, here's Adam and Eve and God actually giving them instruction in all perfection. As they were living, he tells them to do three things. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to uh, tend to the earth, and to have dominion over the earth. The be fruitful and multiply part, we're pretty good at that. We got that part figured out. Check that box. We like that part. The place they struggled was dominion. You see, what God did is he actually gave them rights to the entire earth. In chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have, here's the word, dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So if there's any creeps in here, you were given dominion even over creeps. So here's the thing. Dominion is what we were given. In other words, what God gave to Adam and Eve was the title deed to the earth. It's all yours. It's your inheritance. You can have it. I want you to have dominion over it. I want you to tend to it. I, I want to be in a right relationship with you while you take and have dominion. But at the fall, when Adam and Eve chose a different master, what they also did in that moment is they gave up the title deed to the earth. They gave up dominion to the earth, and they gave it over to Satan himself. This is why Paul is writing about the evil age or the evil world. He's speaking of giving over this title deed. Now, scriptural backup to this, if you looked at Matthew chapter 4, where where Jesus is tempted by Satan there in the wilderness, what does Satan do? He takes him up on a high mountain. He says, look over all the kingdoms of the earth. If you bow down to me, I will give you authority over these kingdoms. And notice what Jesus doesn't do is argue. He does not argue that Satan had the authority to give that over to him. Why? Because he had that kind of authority, at least temporarily. Now, another place to go if you want a second scriptural backup to this is Jesus in John chapter 12 addressing his apostles, his disciples. He says in chapter 12, verse 31, 
Uh, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's speaking there of Lucifer. And what does he say about him? But he is the ruler of this world. Now, if I left you right there, you'd leave very depressed. Thank you so much for the introduction to the letter to the Galatians. I don't feel very good about this world whatsoever. But here's a little bit of reassurance for you. Revelation chapter 5. And here in Revelation chapter 5, John the Apostle is writing this vision down that he's been given on the island of Patmos. And, and here he's actually been taken up into the heavenly scene while tribulation is getting ready to happen on the earth. And as a side note, this is one of the reasons why I believe the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation. John is taken out of the scene and he's been placed in heaven with God. And this is what he witnesses he says, and I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So what he sees is the, the very throne of God, and in God's hand is a scroll written on the inside and on the outside. Now in that day, when they would have a title deed to something, they would actually have a scroll, and they would write down the description of the property. And that property would be passed down from family member to family member, unless... Somewhere along the line, the property was forfeited or given over. And what they would then do is write on the outside of the scroll the requirements that were necessary in order for that property to go back to its rightful owner. Now, what does John see but a scroll written on the inside and on the back? I believe that is the very title deed to the earth that we as mankind gave up at the fall. And what he sees is it's written on the back. The requirements to take that back are written right there. And in verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And so, verse 4, I wept very much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John is brokenhearted. Because here it is, the title deed to the earth. We gave it up, and there is no one that is worthy to take it back. We are stuck in this sinful state, stuck with this evil world. Until verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. In verse 6, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. King Jesus, victorious because of his perfect work satisfying everything that was on the back of that scroll to reclaim, to retake the title deed of the earth, to do the thing that you and I could not do. We were stuck except for the Lamb of God who was slain but was now victorious. He proclaims victory there. And, and now the whole heavenly hosts, they sang a new song in verse 9, and they sang, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain and have redeemed us by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to God and we shall reign on the earth. A beautiful promise. And do you understand what role we played 
in doing that for Jesus? Nothing. We did absolutely nothing. It was his grace that did it all. His perfect victory that did it all. And what Paul writes here at the end of this little section is, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He puts a punctuation on the work of Christ. Amen. It means so be it. So be it is what he says. A period on all the things that these people thought they needed to do, that they needed to contribute. The important message here for us to understand this morning and as we go through this letter is that Jesus is enough. And for way too many times, for far too many years, we have gotten this so very wrong as a church and as a group and in our Western culture is that time and time again, much like these Judaizers, we want to somehow interject our work in the midst of his perfect salvation. We want to somehow contribute just a little bit. But here's the thing. When we make that a part of our salvation, it's not a bad thing to want to serve Jesus because of the good that he's done for you, the grace that he's poured out for you. The problem is when we begin to put things on our salvation like you must be baptized or you must take communion or you must do these things in order for you to have salvation, what we do is what we essentially say is that Jesus and the cross is not enough. We cheapen the grace of Jesus. I want to caution you in that. It's so easy for us to slip into it. It's so easy for us, by the way, to say, but if I just give him a little bit, he'll love me more. I want to assure you he will not love you anymore. But our service, the things we get the opportunity to do are just a perfect outflowing and overpouring of the grace that he's already shown to us. Can it really be that simple? Can it really be simple belief is the way that I am saved for all of eternity? And I would tell you, yes and absolutely, without question. One last place in Scripture as we wrap up. In Jesus' own words, what he says in John chapter 5, verse 24, is most assuredly I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting asked excuse me, has everlasting life and shall not come into the judgment. For him who believes, simple belief, that's our part to play. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for being enough. Lord, please forgive us as we head towards taking communion here in just a few moments for all the ways that we try to interject our works and our plans and our schemes in order to earn your grace. Father, sometimes we do it from a good heart. We don't intend to do bad, and yet we still mess it up in the middle of it. Lord, please remind us. Other times, admittedly, we want to somehow step in and be our own salvation. We want our own works to stand and to speak for our merits and yet it cannot be so Father forgive us for all the times that we've cheapened your grace we thank you for your perfect outpouring we thank you for your blood that took back the title deed to the earth 
We thank you, Father, for your perfect plan to reclaim all that was good and perfect and to be in a right relationship. Lord, we thank you for the word religion, which just means to be relinked to you. We get it so wrong, but we so desperately have this desire to relink to you. We know something's broken. And so, Father, we thank you for making a way, for making a path to be able to reconnect. Lord, help us as we take communion, as we remember the blood that you poured out on our behalf so that we could be redeemed. Help us to be able to reflect and remember upon that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to encourage you to come and take a cup, and you can take it back to your seat, and we will take communion as a family together.
So as Paul was addressing the church in Corinth that uh, they were really good at communion meals, but they had gotten the practice of communion all wrong. He addressed them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to try to reset the way they viewed communion. And what he wrote was in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take and eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me and so Father we thank you for the bread we thank you for the picture of your body broken on our behalf we thank you Father for the work that you did on the cross the work that we could not do for ourselves, Lord. We praise you and we remember you. In Jesus' name, amen. And in the same manner, he also took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, we openly proclaim your victory. Lord, we are so very thankful. We know that it's only by your blood that we are saved. We thank you for giving us the faith that we need to be able to believe. And that being all that you require for us to have eternal life with you. Lord Jesus, we believe in you. We believe on you. We believe that by your work, your blood, all things are possible. Father, I personally want to apologize for all the times that I get in the way, all the times that I think somehow my work has something to contribute in some way that I have somehow taken the wheel and been a part of this salvation when the reality is you did it all. Everything is in you. And we owe you everything as a result. So, Lord, we proclaim that openly. We proclaim your victory in the situations that we have going on that so easily trip us up. Father, by your blood, we can be victorious. By your blood, we are saved. And we openly proclaim this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so after that, they all stood and they sang together. So let's stand up and proclaim victory. Everybody has trials. Everybody has trials and temptations. Everybody knows heartbreak isolation we can lay our burdens down lay our burdens down what a friend we have 
see grace on every horizon in forever and ever his heart is my home everybody has fears everybody got worries everybody knows sorrow devastation we can lay our burdens down lay our burdens down what a friend we have in Jesus peace to us my sins are gone and I see grace on every horizon and forever and ever his heart is my home no more betrayed for he is faithful he fills me up and my cup runneth over no more betrayal for he is faithful how he has proven it over and over no more betrayal for he is faithful he fills me up and my cup runneth over no more betrayal for he is faithful how he has proven it over and over what a friend we have in jesus peace to us my sins are gone and i see grace on every horizon and forever and ever his heart is my home forever and ever his heart is my home and everyone said amen, amen.